Welcome back. This is the second episode of our recurring segment, Going Viral with Dr. Rosella. Because the list of things we bring to work sometimes includes viruses. The COVID-19 pandemic has transformed how and where we work and made us all aware of the importance of public health. So we invite epidemiologist Laura Rosella to chat about the state of global public health and its current main acts. Laura updates us on the status of COVID-19, monkeypox, polio. We get a chance to ask her about how to digest the overwhelming amount of information online, conflicting opinions, the process of scientific evolution. This episode is a deep dive with Dr. Laura Rosella. Please enjoy. Thank you so much for having me. Excited to be here. Um, so school is back. People have started going back to work a lot more than they were maybe a couple months ago. We'll just start with COVID-19. How is it behaving right now with school back? Well, what we're seeing with COVID-19 is continued uh, outbreaks and spread. So it has not gone away. Um, but, you know, we are seeing a slightly different uh, response in that because there's some immunity in the population, good vaccine rates, uh, we aren't seeing as high hospitalization rates, although for certain individuals, it can still be very serious. So still circulating for sure. And different parts of the world are experiencing more, you know, higher and lower numbers depending on the situation. So in our context, back to school, weather's getting colder, people are coming inside, all of that is perfect recipe for increase in all respiratory viruses, including COVID-19. We did have a wave over the summer that's come down, uh, but by all accounts should increase in the next few months because of the increasing respiratory viruses that we see. And probably the most common bit of news right now is about the bivalent ambidextrous vaccine. Can you explain what this is and is it more effective than previous vaccines? Right. So it's a booster, uh, meaning, you know, those that have had a, a vaccine, this vaccine is intended to boost your immune response because you do see waning immunity over time. That means after six months or sometimes, you know, three to six months, depending um, your response and your ability for your immune system to fight back, uh, given the, the priming from the vaccine goes away. So it's a booster. Bivalent means it has both that they call it the wild type, which is the original uh, COVID strain, which is in all vaccines. So you're getting the boost from, from that. And then it also has the Omicron uh, variant in it. And it has the BA, you know, the latest versions of it, if you will, because there's been various variants. So that's really positive because your immune system is getting primed not only with the original, uh, but also the variants, which um, will be very effective for what's circulating right now. So did you say the original is the wild type? <laughs> That's the terminology uh, used when you have characterized the original version. Okay, so that's before before COVID-19, you'd referred to it as the wild type. No, the Not original, like the, once it gets discovered, the original version gets described as the wild type. Okay. Um, so speaking of variants, there were a few months where it felt like COVID-19 was sort of, you know, dropping a surprise album like Beyonce's Renaissance or Taylor Swift's Evermore. And we see a huge amount of news coverage every couple of weeks or every couple of months around that variant. We get used to the name. Uh, it was the most talked about. 
but we don't really see as much coverage on variants as we used to. Is that because there are fewer new variants or are there new ones and we're not paying as much attention to them? Um, so we're still paying attention to all the variants and they come up. They come up again and again, which, as as you mentioned, that's uh, that's what's happening. But not all variants are associated with sustained spread and 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 attributed to most of the cases we're seeing. It Omicron has sustained um, in that sense the latest versions of it. It doesn't mean there's not other variants, and it doesn't mean we have stopped paying attention. It just means it's not responsible for most of the infections we're seeing. A new one. And it doesn't mean a new one can't come. This isn't that surprising because Omicron was very, or is very, very infectious, very, very successful at spreading. So in terms of virus races, it's done very well. <laughs> and so it's, it's not surprising that it's sort of sustaining there, but we, we do continue to monitor and see variants. And then once we see that it's responsible for a large number of cases, you'll see organizations like the WHO calling the alarm saying this seems significant it's actually gaining traction and we need to be concerned about it but this one seems to be staying for now so we haven't had an alert like that really since omicron right okay right and and this the sub variants as we call them we we do have discussion about those but uh we haven't seen an alert like that since then which wasn't that long ago by the way um it seems like if this is changing quickly, but if you think about the original strain and then the variants that came after, you know, this was not happening every month. This was six months to a year between the next one. And so Omicron really came on the scene in January. So it hasn't even been a year. Um, so it, you know, doesn't I guess mean- it, it felt like every month. It, I guess it felt time, like every month. It really did. Yeah. Time is an illusion now. It, time is an illusion. So, <laughs> and it actually hasn't been that long that Omicron has been dominating. Um, it's only been since Jan, you know, pretty much January, December, January. So right. we have to, we have to stay alert. Um, what advice would you have to listeners who maybe have had three doses of their vaccine and they're contemplating a fourth dose or a booster? What advice would you have? Yeah, there's really good evidence uh, to seek out the booster. So first of all, anybody that um, is high risk, meaning they're older or they have a chronic condition or for some other reason may be more likely to experience a complication if they get sick, definitely should have a booster. They probably already have had a booster if they've had three doses. Um, but the really good news about the bivalent vaccine, and we've just seen the high quality studies that have been released on it, is we're seeing a very strong immune response for all variants. And so not only is it boosting your immune system, you know, the way the previous boosters were, but because Omicron's in there, it's boosting your immune response to Omicron, which we know is circulating now. So it's very um, successful and uh, very promising, actually. So I, I would strongly encourage when it's available. It's not right now uh, available necessarily to everyone, depending on your jurisdiction. So if you are high risk, it should be available. Um, and it, it's really looking like it offers very strong protection against what's circulating right now. So shifting, last time we spoke about monkeypox, at the time you mentioned that a focused vaccine strategy to the most affected groups was in progress and in flight at the time. How is that currently going for the world? 
Yeah, so monkeypox seems to be coming down um, the number of cases. So the outbreak seems to be subsiding. It's it's still a concern. And of course, with outbreaks, as as we know, you know, we can say overall it's coming down, but there's probably still localized outbreaks we're concerned about. Um, but I think uh, for the most part, what we've seen is, uh, you know, a very strong response quickly, which was very critical. Um, very good surveillance launched very quickly and then targeted messages around vaccination and uh, targeting a risk of transmission. And so that uh, so far has been positive, although, you know, there's still a number of cases out there. It's not sort of eliminated by any stretch, but the trend is coming down right now. Have you learned something new from observing the behavior of monkeypox or our global response to it? Yeah, I think our global res response was quicker and right. much more coordinated. That is, those are the two things I've noticed. I think um, there was a lot of cooperation very early on. There were alerts sent out very early, and then there were very targeted actions and several actions. We talk, we've talked about the layers of response. I think we all realize how important that is. Vaccination was one piece getting the messages out to communities that were most significantly affected and how they can reduce risk of transmission. You know, all those things working together um, were very, very important. And there was a lot of global collaboration. And I think, you know, a lot of that's because these organizations were collaborating and governments because of COVID response. And so those connections and relationships were there. So you think they sat in the room and said, we've all seen this movie before you know, like yeah. let's get moving faster kind of thing. I mean, they know it's different because right. it transmits different, has different risks, it affects different people, has different outcomes. So that was clear very early on. It wasn't like, oh, let's just go back and do the same thing again. But they're calling the same people they know at those organizations. Right. The importance of getting the message out early was very clear. Um, whereas, you know, maybe if COVID hadn't happened, people would have thought, okay, well, let's just think about this, study more, see what we should do. But we now know that acting early is really critical. Um, and then using all the tools at our disposal and leveraging the relationships built with the communities, I think was really key. So we launched our first episode of Going Viral on August 4th of this year. And when we met, we talked about the increase in polio cases. Right. So a couple weeks later, on August 18th, the New York Times had a headline that read, polio was almost eradicated. This year, it's staged a comeback, like, which makes it sound like it's a, it's a show at Vegas, but that's not what it is. But so um, six weeks later from our first podcast together, where are we right now in the world with regards to the polio situation? Right. Yes. It's very, it continues to be very interesting. There there have been more reports of polio outbreaks in more countries, um, including Canada. And um, so the situation, you know, seems to be growing a little bit. Now, again, as we talked about last time, polio is very different because it's a vaccine preventable disease. And largely the outbreaks that we're seeing are due to pockets where the vaccine levels have dropped below where we see herd immunity. And that's the main concern right now. So this is about you know, vaccine levels dropping, immunity dropping, and it's it's sort of making its way back. And we're seeing that that's happening. It doesn't just exist in New York. It actually, those pockets of under immunization exist uh, in lots of other places. So it continues to be an issue. Um, but again, it's different than 
other infectious diseases in that we have a tool. This is about outreach and making sure that there, there is vaccination and those vaccination levels are getting up. And again, over COVID, a lot of um, vaccine, uh, vaccine uptake dropped across the board, just generally because people weren't seeing their healthcare provider, et cetera. So that's one of the contributing factors. So it's about finding those, air, those pockets where the levels are low and making sure we pay close attention to those. So, I mean, we cover a lot in our conversations about different types of viruses, public health issues in general. And, you know, for you, you, this is what you research. You're, you're bringing in information all the time and you're sort of triaging it and making sense of it so that you can form your opinions. Um, And you spend your time, you know, researching and writing papers every year, but for a sort of for me or someone like me, uh, just somebody who's not a scientist, not an epidemiologist, and for our listeners, um, what would you recommend we do to better make sense of conflicting reports and news news articles? Or, you know, it, it feels like for every one article that says you should do something, there's two that say you shouldn't. Um, how can we start learning how to think or how can we better think about digesting these articles and making our own judgments and decisions. Do you have any just general advice on that? Yeah, this is a great question. I love talking about this. Um, and I think there's some pretty practical things for for listeners and for everyone to think about. And I, I think also it's hard if you've never been, you know, and right in the front lines of creating science, a lot of this can be confusing. So I under, I understand, I get confused when I listen to some of these stories as well. Um, so I'm gonna say four things. So first thing to always keep in mind, and everybody knows this, uh, but it's just, a, it's good to remind everyone that all media content is edited and constructed, and we're getting more and more of it all the time, very quickly. And so this is, you know, it's just really important when, when you see a headline or you see something that's interesting to, to not react uh, about it quickly, because generally speaking, especially when it comes to health, the conflicting or the confusing messages get more airplay and you understand why, right? Because people are much more likely going to click on a story if it's not what they thought it was going to be. It's much more interesting, it's controversial, it's getting their attention. That's what media is designed to do. And and there are very good uh, reporters that really, health reporters that have strong understanding of science and really do a good job of balancing. But sometimes at the headlines or in the echoing of those stories, that doesn't trickle down. So it's always important to understand that, that that when you read media, that it's not, you know, the the polarized views are often exaggerated. So not to, you know, because if you only pay attention, that can be very confusing. The second thing, and I think this is the most important I want people to uh, understand and take away is that science is constantly evolving. And that is a good thing. So what, how science works is There's uh, an observation, a discovery, maybe experimentation, randomized control trial, et cetera. And like any discovery, if you take any discovery down to, you know, the day by day, there's progress that's made forward. Uh, People understand it. They improve upon it. They iterate it. Maybe something wasn't right. You got to take a step back. But sometimes the media messages are just at those moments in time, like those flickers of 
when that first study was say, you know, reported on, but it needs to be replicated. Or maybe it was done in mice. It needs to be replicated in humans. And it's not always obvious when you read the article that that's happening. And so when you see something that might feel, oh, that's opposite than what I heard before, just remember that this is part of the scientific process. There needs to be replication, synthesis. And sometimes when we find something that's you know, changing, that actually can be a good thing. It means we're evolving and we're actually building upon our knowledge. And maybe we're founding, we found something that wasn't quite right before uh, and we have to update it. Or it was just an, a one-off finding that was due to poor study design and we can rule that out. So just remembering sort of like, and it's hard to take a step back, you know, reporting on one study isn't the whole story and that a the evolution of science is actually a good thing and a normal thing and what to happen. So can I make a, a sort of a comparative story to this, which is, yeah. I think everyone goes through the process of trying to decide whether or not they should buy this iPhone or they should wait a year and buy the next iPhone because it'll have a better camera? Is it sort of like, you're just saying science is a process, it's evolving. And, you know, 15, 20 years ago, it was flip phones, you know, and now basically, you know, our the thing that we hold in our pocket is so complex. We couldn't even have imagined, you know, what was possible. Is that sort of similar to how we should think about reading these articles? Is it's all a process of improving and developing on the last version? Absolutely. And, um, you know, it, you have to use the information you have at the time. It has to be of high quality. There's lots of factors which affect the quality of science that, you know, are pretty difficult to see just on the surface. You, you have to be kind of well-trained in this area, but I think, I think that's a really good analogy. And I think in you layer on one more layer of complexity of the pandemic is that, you know, usually we're studying something like, you know, your favorite uh, food exposure and some disease outcome. And for the most part, that's not changing over time. Layer on something like COVID or the pandemic and you're looking and it's changing over time. The virus is changing, our response is changing. So the, the scientific evidence actually may have been very high quality appropriate evidence for March, 2020. Right. Other things have changed. So the application of that evidence maybe isn't as relevant in 2022. So. It, it was really challenging in COVID. And I think it's challenging for people to um, absorb all that information. Okay. Um, the third thing I want to say is, you know, making sure as much as possible not to use individual media, media stories to make major decisions about your health. Um, and again, because most stories are about a single studies and we want to hear about those stories, but it's really about the body of evidence around a particular area and ideally in, consult in consultation with someone that knows about your particular medical history and that you understand how to put that evidence in context for you and your family. Um, well, so, well, there's, there's like yeah. an easy one where if you read an article and you're not a mouse, but the study was, <laughs> was done on mice, you shouldn't be making your decision based on that article. Yeah, that's a really good example. And there's a lot of those. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of those, a lot of messages, a lot of headlines are actually, and th listen, that research is very important. Um, that fundamentals research, the understanding of mechanisms, it's really critical work. My colleagues that do that fundamental research, you know, I have the utmost respect for them because that's generally the basis for a lot of major discoveries that do have an impact in health. But the evidence needs to get there, right? Yes. Um, so we can be excited about the discovery in mice, 
but also put into context that it doesn't mean that the behavior change necessarily has to happen um, in that particular moment. I'm just, yeah. Okay. Sorry. Yeah. Go ahead. You're fourth. And then the last thing I would just tell people is to just be, this is, this is again, a little bit of an obvious one for just sort of critical consumers of media, but just to be, you know, aware of, you know, commercial and conflicts of interest. Um, lately, it's becoming more difficult to tell. Um, so sometimes you'll see advertisements that are actually masked as news or health reporting. And so that's, that's something Wait, that- are those, those pages that are in a slightly different font? Yeah. Well, yes, they look slightly, they really look like news, but something slightly different about yes. them. You can't quite tell. So those are things, I mean, this is just, again, generally, you know, things to watch out for. There's obviously a conflict, conflict of interest and it doesn't necessarily mean it's, you know, false what's being reported, but you're not necessarily guaranteed to be getting the balance of the story that you would like. And, and likewise, a lot of opinions and things uh, being reported today. So you know, uh, it's it's really great that people are reading and, and seeing the news stories, but taking it in and understanding the context and, you know, the pros and cons of getting this information in the media, I think is, is really important. I think the media does a very good job at raising attention to issues and they're really great at transparency and accountability and calling for these things. And it's just about how you use that information. It's not like don't read the media, but what do you do with it when you read it? And hopefully it doesn't um, make people, you know, distrust science or the scientific process. That's what I worry about because they see things that are evolving. I want people to know that that's a natural part of all of our discoveries in science, not just for health. So, so that it's actually very healthy to have different discoveries that may prove the opposing aspects of, you know, I, I'm going to use an example. Coffee's great for you. Coffee's not great for you. You know, you see those articles that, that just are completely at odds, but your point is that it's an evolving series of scientific studies and you have to understand the context for yourself. Yeah. And once we have enough of those studies, uh, generally what we'll do is we'll sit down and we'll unpack them and then we'll realize, well, actually some studies, you actually can't take the conclusion for what it says because there were some problems with how the study was carried out. So we can't be sure, you know, there's some, we call them threats to validity. So we can't be sure that, the result is because of what they claim it is, or it's because there was some, you know, um, concerns with how the study was carried out. So that's one thing that happens. The other thing that happens is, again, sometimes you get a finding that looks the other way, but 99% of the findings are this way. So when you actually look at the body of evidence together, what does it say? And so for coffee, for example, we have what we call systematic reviews. So you systematically look at every single study that's ever been done. And when you look at the systematic reviews, you actually see for you know less than five cups a day, there's no evidence of increased risk of severe health outcomes. But unless you're a mouse. And maybe in mice. <laughs> I haven't looked in I haven't done I haven't looked at the systematic reviews in mice. So um, you know, that that's a good example of that one study, you know, saying something different might get a lot of attention, but it doesn't mean that it changes the body of evidence in the in the area, which you have to consider. And it also doesn't mean that you as a consumer of coffee, it means you can always drink it or you can never drink it because you might have a particular right medical condition that you and your doctor have talked about that you'll take that evidence and say, but for me, this is what's important. So that's, that's the second piece. Right. And so in high school, now there's programs that teach um, students 
the basics of personal finance, for example. It's, it's awesome, right? So understanding what is a credit card? What, is, what does debt mean? What does credit mean? What's a mortgage? You know, to help them get prepared for going into the next phase of their life. Given the rise of just the awareness of public health knowledge, do you think that something like that for a younger audience, like, or is there something that, that like that that exists right now? Or do you think that there's going to be a push to try to provide those programs to educate people earlier on exactly this, you know, how to think about how to understand public health issues and how to think about scientific, you know, articles and, and make sense of the health around you? Yeah, there are in high schools, uh, I believe, media literacy more general, which is great. It's about um, teaching people to not just believe everything they read and how do you critically look at what you read and determine whether or not it's good. And that's just generally. And of course, you it's important for, for every type of story, political stories, all kinds of stories. Um, there also has been some um, work in the environmental space. So you know, I think understanding why environmental issues are important and like understanding how to critically look at environmental reporting. Again, it's important because that makes people understand why climate initiatives are important for them in their future. Uh, probably less specific on public health, although I think, and I think now that will be something that I, people will start focusing on more. And I agree with you that it needs to start in high school. Um, this idea of being a critical consumer of information and knowledge uh, needs to happen in high school. And again, the students or even earlier and the students now are getting bombarded with so much more information than maybe we were when we were young. Um, you know, there used to be a newspaper that showed up on your door and maybe you could have four different newspapers and that was kind of it. And now there's information at all angles. So the uh, the concept and the ability to be very critical consumer of that information is, is one of the most important skills I think we need to teach. And then understanding health, I think is a good, important aspect of it. The, the hard part of the health I'll just mention is to really be able to understand the validity of a study really does take detailed training in, you know, understanding study design and how studies and how recruit individuals into study and measurement and all the biases that can trick in, it, it's actually a pretty challenging task um, and takes years, definitely took me years to be able to, to really critically appraise scientific uh, evidence in epidemiology. So it's not that we have to train everyone to that level, but right. there are some sort of surface level things that everyone can do. And then actually understanding like how to question things, how to interpret things and making sure not to react on everything that's been seen. I think that's, what's really important. Right. To sort of absorb it and respond, take a look at the overall distribution of all the information you have before you make decisions about your health. Yeah. And talk to others, especially. So what's happening now in, in social media is there can be echo chambers of very similar thinking. Um, and again, this is not just health. This is anywhere, right? So it's really important to have an outside opinion, uh, talk to others who might have a different opinion. We, we have institutions in our society which are trusted. Um, so understanding like what's said on the Public Health Agency of Canada, what's said on the CDC, what's said on the WHO. And you don't have to just look at one if you, 
you know, look at many. So that little bit of effort to say, like, if it's different than what's being said by these institutions, ask why, think about it, talk with an expert about it. So there's something that you mentioned to me a while ago that I thought was so practical and simple about, given that we're going into the winter season now, the importance of indoor air quality in your home, in your school, at your office. And you said that there was something really simple that you feel like if people knew that, it would make a big difference. Would you mind sharing a bit about that? Sure. Um, taking off your shoes uh, <laughs> it, uh, and not wearing shoes that you wear outside uh, in the house. What and if you have outdoor slippers though? Keep oh, them as outdoor slippers. slippers. Yeah, yeah. So the, the idea is, um, so indoor air quality is very interesting. And I learned a lot about this from... Um, someone I worked with who, you know, studied indoor air quality their whole life. So it's a, it's a really fascinating space and there's a lot of amazing experts here, but we, we think a lot about outdoor air quality, which yes. is very important and uh, air pollution and things like that, but there's indoor air quality and um, things, depending on things like ventilation and all kinds of other things that are in the indoor space, actually, which can be controlled in many ways, um, that can really affect it. And we spend so much time indoors. And so um, I got that tidbit of information because when you walk outside, and, and this goes for other clothes too, um, pick up a lot of things on the bottom of that shoe. And then you've brought it into your house. And if if you continue to spread it throughout your house, it can actually be really difficult to get it out. Um, and you all kinds of things can come in and, unless you have a sort of high-tech ventilation system. So that's why I always take off shoes before I go inside the house. And um, you can have indoor slippers if you like wearing shoes in the house. <laughs> and separate outdoor slippers. <laughs> and separate outdoor slippers. All are possible. But, you know, a simple way to make sure that you're not bringing things in that can be difficult to take out. Yeah, it's, I mean, we are looking at the Canadians spend 90% of the year indoors something like that? Yeah. So I, I mean, again, one of the positive lessons from COVID is I think we are now paying attention to indoor air quality a lot and what we can do and interventions that we can make sure to have our indoor air quality better. I mean, um, having circulation indoor is very, very critical. And a lot of buildings were not built that way, especially right. a lot of the buildings that were built here in the sixties and seventies, they don't even have windows that can open you know, there's a lot of indoor air quality and we spend so much time inside. So, um, yeah, I think that that's a, that's a big one for me. <laughs> <laughs> and Simple. some, ca some cats spend their whole lives indoors. I know. Yeah. So if not for us, for the cats. Agreed. <laughs> I promise that we wouldn't talk about a new virus every time we have an episode. I'm curious to understand when would a new virus be created? Like what are the conditions that need to exist for a new virus to jump on the scene? Yes, good question. So uh, new viruses are always looking for a way to jump on the scene, <laughs> but the ones that tend to be problematic for humans are the ones that tend to come from animals. Um, so a lot of human animal interaction could mean that a virus that exists in animals where the animal population has adapted to that virus and knows how to fight it off 
can mix with a virus that's living in human population and the human population has adapted to the virus and generally knows how to live with it. And then they come together and create a, a brand new virus, oh, which no. is problematic because the human immune system has not seen this before. We have not evolved for the virus that has grown up in that particular situation, or it's changed viruses that we do interact with like influenza in ways that are very worrisome. So all the worrisome influenza strains have been this way. We had avian influenza, H1N1 came from pigs. If you'll remember, it was initially called swine flu. So this interaction between animals and humans can be very uh, problematic. That's for creating new viruses. Right. The, and, and that's why actually one really important initiative, I think I've mentioned it um, in the past, it, is this initiative called One Health, which really understands that in order to make our world safer for everyone, we have to understand this relationship and make sure that we're not doing things like overcrowding with animals in spaces or making sure that we're unsafe in, in the way that we're thinking about animals and humans. And it actually relates to sustainability as well. Um, the other challenge when animals and humans hang out together can be, so I talked about the situation where they're mutating and creating, you know, SARS-CoV-2. Yes. Um, but there can also be a situation where viruses that or bacteria that are common in animals code to the human. So it hasn't necessarily mutated, but the human immune system does not know what it is or just does not do well with it. And so for this, I got my first exposure to this in my master's in epidemiology. I was in my field epidemiology course, which is all about how you study outbreaks and how outbreaks happen. And, um, the out, we had a, an expert uh, come in and speak to us about an outbreak that they had just investigated. And they were talking about, you know, really pretty severe outbreak affected children. Many people that went to this petting zoo were infected. Oh no. And they went to figure out, you know, what's the source of this? How can we, you know, ep epidemiology is all about trying to get to control the stop the chain the transmission right like where is the transmission occurring and they realized that the cotton candy machine <laughs> was right next to the place where I think they were petting goats if I remember oh no so you know like your hand is petting the goat <laughs> and then your hand is going to the cotton candy machine and then you were eating the cotton candy and there were some there were some pretty severe uh, outbreaks that were and that wasn't called the cotton candy goat virus that was, was not it? the cotton candy it was a um a typical like it was sort of a typical virus uh that circulates so nothing nothing you know so it wasn't a pandemic strain strain of anything but right had you not been petting the goat and touching the food that transmission wouldn't have happened right yeah so then it became about making sure that you can't pet animals and touch food that actually goes to a whole bunch of people so all to say, um, you know, we don't live on this planet alone. We share this planet with animals <laughs> and plants, and we have to be very careful about how we interact and understand that space and make sure we're respecting everyone that lives on this planet. And, uh, you know, that that is a very important area of focus for people that are trying to prevent the transmission and start of many 
um, deadly and serious viruses. But it's getting me thinking, you know, as the population continues to grow in the world, we need to find new places to live. So aren't we going to new places all the time and potentially meeting new plants or new creatures we haven't been so close to? Is that also happening? For sure it's happening, but if we do it in a sustainable way or in a small controlled way, that generally is not when there's problems. Okay. There's problems when we supercharge it, like, you know, mass, you know, development quickly, which isn't good for lots of reasons, right? So this is why before you do that, you have to have an environmental impact assessment. It's also related to the potential health effects when you disrupt uh, that. So if, if something does happen and there's, you know, only one or two people there, it, it doesn't sort of translate into a worldwide issue. But if it's a lot of people and a sustained problem, that's when, when it's being, when you have to worry about it. But I think people would hear the term environmental impact study and assume that there's, you know, a study that's done about a rare crustacean that lives here and not now think about how it would relate to human health if we sort of like you said, develop too quickly. Do you think that people are changing their understanding of what environmental impact means now to also include that sort of exchange between all creatures? Is there, is there studies around this or is there dialogue around this now in a different way? Yes, there definitely is. And there's lots of people who focus in climate health and uh, climate epidemiology or environmental epidemiology um, they have known for many years and it is catching on more that anything, any factor that affects the environment affects health. They, we, can't te- we, we can't look at these things separately. They're actually very intimately intertwined in lots of ways, direct and indirect. And everything from, you know, we're talking about infectious disease, but also noise and air quality and toxins you know, you name it, all these things eventually have an impact on human health as well. So this is pretty well known and uh, well established and lots of people working in the space, creating really good evidence that are, you know, informing some of those policies that are happening right now. I think a lot of people think the climate policies are just about climate, Yeah, but they're intimately related to the health and our ability to sustain healthy lives on earth, right? They are intimately related. Yeah. Like the Patagonia saying is save our home planet and that their initiative, their ethos is all about saving the planet. And I feel like sometimes, like you said, I think sometimes we can not remember that it's also us intimately intertwined with the existence of the planet. And maybe that's becoming a little more in the forefront of people's minds now. Hopefully. So COVID-19, everybody knows started in March, 2020. It's now September, 2022. It's probably going to be March, 2023, pretty soon. If you could, if you could roll the tape back, would you want there to be different messaging in March, 2020 than what we had? Yeah. So, I mean, and again, this isn't, this isn't a criticism to people that were trying to make sense at the time, but if, if we were to go back, um, I, I would say you know, definitely the first, one of the first really well done modeling studies that I saw that actually looked at the long-term behavior of, based on how coronaviruses behave, talked about this ending around 2023. And that wasn't even the worst case scenario, probably 
2024 or 25 in worst case scenario. And that wasn't accounting for a lot of things that actually happened. It was a long-term modeling study. And in fact, that's what's happening. So I think um, we could have been more clear about the fact that this is, when it's this severe and this challenging, that it's going to be a long-term commitment, Right. that there were going to be different distinct phases. We're not everything, the response of March, 2020 does not look like the response now, or even the response six months later. Yeah. Um, and that there's distinct phases that we're going to have to go through and that we're going to learn as we go and, and tailor our interventions and approaches throughout. And so that people think of this more like steps that we have to go through and that it's a multi-year process. I think that messaging would have been very helpful early on because I think there was just a sense that this was going to be done, you know, a couple of weeks, then it's done. And then when it wasn't, it really introduced a lot of frustration and worry in everyone. And it made it feel like we weren't making progress when in fact we made tremendous progress, learned so much, saved so many lives. Um, but I think the ex- against the expectations that this might be over quick, I think was the challenge. It's the classic we couldn't see the forest through the trees, right? So if you had, we had panned out first and had a sense of where we were heading, it really would have, you feel like it would have helped us just digest everything. Yeah, most pandemics take, I mean, again, people people handle this information differently, but most pandemics take multi multiple years. There are different phases, some phases more severe than others, but we're going to have to go through and act together in some way um, for a few years before we get back to what it was. And of course, we're not ever going to go back to the way it was because you you kind of change um, in, in so many ways when you go through something like this. I think that messaging would have been helpful. So we had like the very scary phase in the beginning, higher mortality, uncontrolled spread, don't know what to do. Then we're in the phase where we actually have a vaccine, but we couldn't get it to the right people in time. And now we're in the phase again where it's still here. We need a different booster because the variance has changed. So it's sort of like, I wish we had told people to expect that. Because if you told people to expect that, they could adjust their risk tolerance and behaviors, understanding that it wasn't going to last forever. Like, I feel like people's patience in the first phase was really tested in the second phase, even more in the third phase. I mean, there's a lot of COVID exhaustion, just talking about it or thinking about it or, you know doing the risk calculation in your mind. And so that messaging, like, let's go, can we go back and yeah, yeah. write a headline in 2020 of what that, um, what you, what you would have ideally put in front of people? So I don't know if it would be a headline, um, because it's long, but essentially the elements of the message would have said, we're entering, uh, an unprecedented situation, global pandemic, it's likely to be long. Uh, it will change over time. And um, your response will need to change over time, but it, it will take it will take years to fully get out of this. But and how do look, you think people would have responded hearing it's gonna take years? Well, I mean, people will respond differently for sure. I am I believe in this, maybe not everyone believes this way. So that's okay. I believe in being transparent and honest with people that yeah. help, and that helps make manage expectations. 
And I remember this is just like a side note, a personal side note. Um, before I had my first child, you know, everyone was just like joyful, joy, joy, joy. Everyone that had been through it was telling me about all the joy. I had one friend who was very honest with me <laughs> and was like, listen, those first six weeks, they're rough and you're going to be tired and you're not going to sleep and X, Y, and Z. And I thought that was a little bit of a downer. But after I had my child, there wasn't a day that went by that I didn't think about her and I was grateful because then I didn't feel so bad because mm -hmm. I thought, okay, I'm actually going through what she told me I was going to go through. And this is, it's not just me. Um, so I'm a big believer in, in being honest and transparent with people. I mean, with all, you know, in all fairness, no one could have known. And I think mm -hmm. everyone hoped because many viruses do die out quickly. Yeah. And I think many people, and no one could have anticipated the increase in infectiousness and the challenges we experienced there. So I think it's impossible, but we did have some excellent uh, infectious disease modelers who actually looked at the way coronaviruses behave and had some insight that this was not going to be quickly over. So I think, I think that would have been helpful. At least for me, that would have been helpful messaging. I think for many others, it would have been helpful too. And also telling people it's not the same. Cause I think what the other thing people struggle with is that this is the same. Like, I feel like I'm still in March 22. We're not in March right. 22, not right? At all. We're yeah. not shut down. Most people can do many things. We have other tools. We have tests and masks yeah. and maybe things are a little more restricted, but for all intents and purposes, we're in a much better place. Definitely. But we still gotta, we still gotta finish it. Um, and we still got to do a few more things, but we're not exactly. So we've actually moved into a different phase. So I think talking about the phases of the pandemic also would have been helpful uh, messaging. I think just getting people through this journey that we're on. So the other day, somebody said to me, yeah, a couple more years, just like the Spanish flu. And I thought, were you yeah. around when the Spanish flu started? They definitely weren't. Neither was I. Can you, can you clarify? Is this just like the Spanish yep. flu? Yep. Two to four years, Spanish flu, two wow. to four years. Okay. I 50, guess they were right. 50 to a hundred million deaths and two to four years. So, you know, it, and, and other, um, respiratory virus epidemics that most people don't pay attention to also behave like this because they're, they're not as severe as COVID. So it's, it's exactly, um, it's not that unexpected. I think the directions of the variants and all of that, that is very hard to predict. Um, and just how severe and actually the sequelae of this virus, which are very unusual. Like all, there's been lots of surprises. So I'm not saying this was by any stretch predictable, but, but I on think- On the macro scale, it sounds like there was a sense of we're gonna go through three or four big chunky phases. Yes. And we could have had a sense that we sort of know where we're heading minus the details of the story. Yes. That would have been helpful. <laughs> helpful messaging. And I think then, especially for this last phase, this is where I see it. People... I wouldn't have bought two extra fridges in a deep freeze. <laughs> well, I think, uh, I could think we've avoided the toilet paper rush. Yeah. Yep. I think we could and have. also, I think more than anything, the, the sense of we've gone backwards when we have to use some of the restrictions again, or we need boosters, that is not backwards. Mm -hmm. That is responding to the evolving situation. It's a tailored approach. It's a tailored to... approach and responding to what we're seeing. Yeah. Um, it doesn't mean we failed in the previous ones. Actually, on the contrary, we saved 
a lot of lives with the measures that were introduced and it's going to be very difficult for like it's public health has this problem it's very difficult to count successes because they're about non-events so <laughs> the success like, is when nothing happens yeah that's the success right so the success in that you know there weren't the tragic uh well there were there were still significant tragic um losses but they weren't much much greater for example so it's, it's kind of hard to talk about that right so the fact that we're responding and we're continuing to use what we've learned in a more specific and tailored way is a success so the fact that you know you might need to keep a mask on in certain settings or need a booster is a success we've learned something and we're continuing to deal with the situation it's the maya angelou quote when you know better you do better 100 <laughs> percent. and we've learned um, a lot yeah. and um okay i want to go i want to just ask you something to clarify sure you said 50 to 100 million deaths. That was for the Spanish flu. Yes. How many deaths have we had for COVID? Because I feel like I just want to make sure, because we haven't had that many, have we? Uh, not 50, um, but definitely over 6 million. Okay. Um, and, you know, I think when all is said and done, it's going to be quite a bit higher than that. I, at least my sense is a lot more than people think. And would have been a lot more. I think that's the key thing, your point you're making oh, yeah. is would have been so much more if we hadn't had the the vaccine campaign and just being able to discover and create those vaccines as quickly as we did. Yeah, uh, we, had, we had vaccine, we had really good um, advances in clinical treatment, uh, not, not drugs, I'm saying, clinical management, I should say. So when patients did show up, how to give them supportive care quickly, like the, the clinical treatment, uh, the clinicians that treat COVID patients did tremendous work and adapted very quickly to reduce mortality. So, you know, the the shutdowns when they did happen, the extra screening at the airport, the mat, like all these things contributed, right? Welcome to the debrief, the meeting after the meeting. We're joined by your host, Sonia Senek, and a couple of her friends from work, Amar Kaur and me, Elizabeth Chim. Hello. Hi, Hi Sonia. <laughs> Perfectly timed together. <laughs> We're so in sync. How much did we learn from Laura? Just more and more knowledge about all of the viruses, which I, for one, was not keeping up with. So thank you so much for updating me on everything that's going on in the world. I mean, I thank Laura wherever she is. I feel like that's the purpose of this, you know, nice curated information for the lay people like us. <laughs> yeah. For the non-celebrity epidemiologists. Uh-huh. So I was looking online and so I was just laughing when like you guys were talking about wild type. It like yeah. made me think of Pokemon, but <laughs> wild type is indeed a term used in genetics to describe a gene when it's found in its like natural non-mutated form. It is not a Pokemon. Isn't it interesting though, wild type would imply that it's not the undisturbed form. You know, like I, she said, oh yeah, you know, the wild type and now we have so many variants. I mean, ev isn't every variant very wild? But anyway, we're, we're, we're I, she knows obviously. And you checked. I liked your little sneak in with the, the surprise albums. Um, so- <laughs> 
I feel like so this Sunday I'm actually going to I think like kind of my first actual formal concert since the pandemic I haven't really gone to any concerts actually the first concert since the pandemic that I went to was earlier this year and it was your concert Sonia (laughs) it was a fundraising concert just to be clear it was fun right it was fun extremely no I said fundraising but yes but also (laughs) fundraising for the listeners that don't know Sonia plays in a band and she's also a phenomenal singer (laughs) I play yeah I play bass in a band that's it that's that's (laughs) I hang out in the in the background and just make sure that the bass notes get played when you're a bass player you're at the intersection of the rhythm and the melody and you sort of have that you have like a convening power to the song you only notice bass when it's not there like no one it's very rare you listen to a song and go oh I love that bass line and so what's different from the bass, the instrument, and like bass quality in a song? Right. So the size of, <laughs> we're going into it, but the size of the subwoofer, you know, the size of the actual speaker, can you really pump out, you know, uh, the lower frequencies? Can you get to those lower frequencies also with the higher amplitude or like intensity of the sound? And so the bigger your subwoofer, the more you're able to actually further resonate those like big bassy sounds so should we ask what concert this is oh yeah um so the headliner is called real friends and the band that i'm going to see is like right before them it's called with confidence and i'm just a big pop punk fan that's probably my favorite genre what a positive band name <laughs> that really is you know yeah everyone just wants some confidence and some real friends that's all you need in life and, yeah, that's all you need it's a very feel-good pop punk concert mm-hmm. is it outdoors no it's not. indoors okay yeah you know pre-2020 we never would ask we never we never be interested in ever <laughs> is it an outdoor concert how's the air circulation have you tested the air quality <laughs> are people going to take off their shoes yeah, that's the important thing because who knew that that's what caused all this indoor air quality issues is people wearing their shoes everywhere. Now we know. Um, As uh, Laura was talking and like talking about uh, exposure and spread, I have to ask this question because I don't think we've talked about this, but did you guys watch that movie Contagion after COVID happened? Absolutely not. (laughs) I watched it, yeah. During the pandemic. Didn't we experience contagion? We did. And it made it even scarier. Like if you watch that movie, you're just like, why did I, why did I make this decision to watch it? I also then made the mistake of showing it to my parents. And I think that's the reason that they got even more careful during the (laughs) pandemic about precautions is because they watched that movie. Life imitates art. Everything in that movie happened in real let's just it was very similar it was like it was eerie how apt it was when was this movie released like the early 2010s 2011 contagion was released in 2011 we should interview the people who made contagion we should we should actually it was a good movie. Like I, I did watch it pre-COVID and then it was like one of the first movies I thought of when when this all started happening. Uh, the, once we, we got past that stage where I was like, oh, I'm being sent home. It's fine. Two weeks. We'll be back in the office. Then it's like, oh, no, no, no. This is not. It was never going to be issue. two weeks. <laughs> I remember being like, it's day 13. Can I leave my house now? 
because magically tomorrow something changes exactly and then when it got extended I just kept on getting sadder and sadder every time I'm like and then after a point it's like okay no 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 this is gonna be a long-term it's been a whole fortnight (laughs) we lasted the fortnight we can do anything (laughs) Exactly. oh man um Sana you brought up iPhones in the discussion I did with Laura and that's a very I think I incorrectly mentioned the iPhone 13 I think we're on 14 now we are on 14 now and they changed the colors I just wanted to let you guys there's purple available purple's available but green is not thank you for letting us know you heard it here first Amara is like the number one spokesperson yeah just letting you know she is so I'll say what I learned yeah beware of cotton candy machines near petting zoos and funnily enough after we recorded that episode i was in a park hot dog stand at the entrance of a petting zoo oh no yeah and i didn't know i you can't it's too difficult to explain so i said hey you got to listen to this podcast no i'm kidding i didn't say that (laughs) um you see the world through a different lens when you get exposed to that type of knowledge you know and she has such a great way of making it feel so easy to understand and I did appreciate her um appreciating media like the the fact that they do also have a job in in relaying information but that every person um um has to be responsible for how they how they take that information and digest it right yeah and I also um heard someone say something very interesting which was you know be responsible for what's in your feed meaning what are the things that you're following curate that content for yourself so you are exposed to the broad range of things you want to be exposed to or maybe not exposed to other things but making sure that you have the opportunity to be informed on the things that will continue to elevate your curiosity yeah it's complex um it definitely takes a certain amount of self-awareness to be able to curate the content that you're just exposed to and consuming but also a certain amount of just literacy in media and science as well. Um, I know with my partner, this is like a discussion that we have a lot where he is very, very adamant that social media is quite damaging to your mental health. And I agree with him, even though like I work in marketing myself and like it is a large aspect of my job, but I think there are a lot of benefits to it, but the general public needs to learn how to navigate through it. And I think we're in this weird in-between period where like there's no course that's teaching young children how to curate their social media and like what's real and what's not. Maybe they're starting to implement this. I've been out of school for a long time. I hope they are. But um, I feel like because of my work in social media, I put a lot of effort into curating what I am exposed to to make sure that it aligns with what I want to see. And so when he scrolls, when my partner scrolls through my feed, he's like, wow, wow, this is awesome. There's like food and dogs and interior design and art. This is like all the things you love. He's like, my feed is stressful. (laughs) And it just angers him, but he keeps watching them because it makes him upset. And I was like, that's why they keep sending you this kind of content. Right. Every tool is a weapon if you hold it right. Mm Mm-hmm. My feed is truly every other suggested tile is cats. And I'm not exaggerating that. I don't know if they, I recently had a best friend memory thing where your phone automatically creates a slideshow for you. 
mm-hmm. and it said years of best friends and it was a picture of me and my cat so this is <laughs> building some self-awareness on maybe over indexing on my friendship <laughs> with the cat <laughs>